some series called uh, Colossians, the Battle for Supremacy. Um, I have kind of gone into the summer doing that questions. I've got a couple questions about current event issues. Um, and felt like the Lord really was wanting me to do this series in Colossians um, to kind of unfold this, this very short letter um, and, and, and see what God is speaking to us, see what Paul was writing to the church of Colossae, and not only to them again, but to us. It is the word of God, and it's a letter to us that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote these words. And, uh, and, and so this is where I felt like the word was, was uh, taking us, and we will be, in two weeks, we will actually be really looking specifically at some current event issues and a couple of questions that we received about current events. Um, and, 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 but I felt like before I got there, because in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul really does speak about current events and, and how we are to live life and how we are to approach life. And so he deals with those things from a real godly perspective. And, uh, and But in, in chapter 1 and 2, he's really looking this foundation, I believe. And I love how this book is written with letters. And it's not just a, a book of theology. It's not just about who God is. Paul is writing a letter to uh, a group of Christians in a city. And he's saying, here is who Christ is. And you need to know who Christ is, and you need to be sure of who Christ is in your own heart so that you can understand how to live in a godly way. And then, so he makes some very strong statements, and that's why I felt led to do this, is because if you understand and you believe who Christ is and who Paul says um, Christ is, it should change our perspective and the way we live, and we should be living counterculturally um, in the world that we live in. And so... I've entitled this The Battle for Supremacy. So next week, our um, Camp Barnabas team will be sharing, the Pastor Barry will be sharing in our service, and so we'll take a little break, and then the following week, um, we will deal with some of those very specific um, issues. Continue to pray for Camp, the Camp Barnabas team. They were left um, early morning, um, Friday, and, and uh, so they're there all this week, so continue to pray for them. But, as I mentioned last week, I encourage you to, as you get into the book of Colossians, to read it, um, meditate it, study it, um, pray through it. It's a very short letter. Um, it's only four chapters. And in fact, um, at the end of the book, Paul just really is giving a lot of commendations to people that served with him, you know, these people that volunteered with him. And, and, uh, and so he's giving these kind of shout-outs to them and thanking God to them and um, and, and so it really is, the neat part of it is uh, it really these those three chapters, and, and so we're going to be looking at that. Um, again, just for clarity, if you weren't here last week, Paul is writing this from prison. He didn't actually go to Colossae. Some places he went on these missionary journeys. Um, his friend Epiphras, who was uh, kind of one of his spiritual sons, went there, evangelized that place, and planted a church there. And, uh, and so Paul is kind of as a spiritual father to this place. He never actually went there, but now through kind of epigraphs, he's writing this letter and encouraging them and, and, and talking to them. Um, he is kind of dealing with dealt with this uh, last week. We'll deal with it more in detail today. But he's gotten a report of kind of false beliefs that were taking into the church. 
And so as the Spirit of Father, He's given us some instructions, some warning, and saying, I want to encourage you uh, to uh, not trust in man-made religion because there was a group of people trying to bring in some man-made thoughts and do things, and He says, no, 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 no. Um, Christ is sufficient. You need to believe who Christ is. And that is why He begins chapter 1 with this kind of emphatic statement of who Jesus is. And it's really the foundation of where we're going over these next few weeks in talking about current events and how we should live life and live in a godly life following Jesus. And he makes a very emphatic statement of who Jesus is. And, uh, and, and, and he's greeting them in chapter 1, and he's saying, I love you, and I want to thank God for you. And then he goes into it. It's almost the way it's written. It's almost he breaks into worship. And he goes into saying, this is who Christ is, and you need to understand in your life, in the life around you, in everything that we do in life, who Jesus is. And so we're going to look at that again from chapter 1, starting in verse 15, and kind of laying down this foundation. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So he's talking about the deity of Christ. Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. He existed before anything was created, and He is supreme. That means first, preeminent, ruler, the ultimate authority. We'll get into that in a moment. Over all creation, for through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things that we cannot see. So the thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and before Him. Everything. And if you do the Greek study there, it means everything. It's pretty amazing. Preacher jokes. It's kind of weak, isn't it? Um, and so then he goes into uh, verse 18. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first preeminent supreme in what? What does it say? Everything. Everything. For God in all this fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through whom God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. A lot of first preeminent and everything in that passage, right? And so he says this right in the middle of chapter 1, goes into this, breaks out into worship of who Jesus is, and basically, we take this information, he's written this under the inspiration of the power of the Holy Spirit, and either it's true or it is not true. And we have to, each one of us individually, all of mankind has to do something with this. And to me, Paul is laying to rest anything else of, and he's saying, Everything that Jesus even said about himself is all true. He's the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven except Jesus. He's the eternal life. He's the bread of life. He's the, he's the living water of life. He's our healer, our provider, our protector. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Everything that's said about him, Paul is saying, is true. And so you have to do something with that information. He's supreme over Everything. Everything. I love the definition um, on the screen here of supreme and preeminent. So, looking at 
kind of dictionary definitions, also looking at the Greek word and what is what is Paul getting at original language. And it's exactly, you know, as we you conjure up, and these are probably words that if you know if we went around and, and I said, give me a synonym for preeminent or supreme, these are things that you would probably say. It's highest in rank or authority. Paramount, sovereign, key, of the highest degree, character importance, greatest, above and superior to everything and everyone else, surpassing all others, the final say, the final authority on all things. That's who Jesus is. And people wrestle, and people, we will all wrestle, and, and is that true or not? And when we, I think when we engage, especially in culture, and we have some of these current event things, and people want to talk about, you know, what they believe about this or believe about that, I think a good place to take them is this is what the Word of God, this is what is said of Christ. And we either believe it or we don't believe it. And if we don't believe it, then that's it. The Holy Spirit is going to testify of who Jesus is. And He's speaking to our hearts to bring us to a place where He is supreme over all. We talked a little bit last week about this, this started from the very beginning. Adam and Eve. God gave them the garden, and He said, I want you to manage here. I want you to be stewards. And they had a level of authority there. You know, Adam named the animals. And he said, I want you to manage. Ultimately, again, if God is supreme and Christ who is there with God in creation, by Him, through Him, all these things are there. And he's saying, Adam and Eve, here's your garden. I want you to manage for me. Remember, here's how you're always going to successfully manage. I'm the owner. I'm sovereign. I'm supreme. I'm the chief. I have the final authority and say, you manage. You will have a level of authority. But always remember, the way you successfully manage is to understand that I'm the owner. And that's the whole idea of stewardship. That word, big word, stewardship means manager. And God has given each one of you, and myself, He's given us this life that we live. And He said, your, your, your garden, you know, if you're, if you're using the analogy of Adam and Eve, your sphere of influence, the life you've been given, how you live life, place, you know, how you work. If you are married, what kind of spouse? If you are a parent, what kind of a parent you are? If you're a child, what kind of a child? What kind of a friend? What kind of a co-worker? What kind of a, an example are you living? So our world is our own personal garden that we get to manage, not own. And therein lies the problem of culture. Therein lies the issue of sin. Is Adam and Eve that God get off the throne, will take rulership. And when they took of the fruit, that God said, don't eat of that fruit. You can have anything else. And why did God do that? Because it's free will. There's a part of God that says, you will, you will have management responsibility. So you, you can have a level of control there, but manage wisely. And what they did was they removed God from the throne. They put themselves on the throne and said, we will become we will make ourselves supreme. We will make ourselves animal. And therein lies all of sin. Sin is my right to myself and to put myself on the throne of my own life. So we try to make ourselves supreme. We try to make ourselves the final authority instead, instead of Christ. And Paul is saying this. As you live your life, Christ must be supreme. He must be. That's who He is. 
He doesn't take 90% of your life. He doesn't just own your life on Sunday morning when you're at church. So every day that we give our life and we make Him preeminent. And so, Colossians 2, we're going to jump into this and uh, we're going to move through here. Um, I'm going to be kind of pausing as we go, talking about what where Paul is going in this. Uh, I mean, it's a second chapter for us, but he didn't like you know do chapters back then. This is a letter, um, and we've broken it down. But Paul continues his letter to these believers, and he's driving the point home that Jesus is supreme and preeminent. So chapter two is you know chapter one is the foundation of who Christ is, and then chapter two is building on that. Getting to chapter three, where it's going to get real practical about how to live life. But he's emphatic that life should be all about Jesus. That he should be first. That he should be the one leading and us following. That's why Jesus and his disciples, he said, come and follow me. I'm not following you. And so, you know, when we make ourselves supreme and family and we start leading, guess who's not following us? Jesus. He's, he's moving and we are to follow him. And Paul is getting at this, that he's leading and we are following and so this chapter, again, it's important that we will go into chapter 3. Colossians 2, verse 1. Let's go right into this. So he says, I want you to know how much I've agonized for you. And I want you to, again, hear the heartbeat of a letter written. You know, this is more than just like a study of a, uh, you know, a, a book in the Bible. Uh, there's heart behind it. He said, I want you to know how much I've agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea. And the other church in the region, the region. For many other believers who have never met me personally. So again, he had through Epiphras planted this church. He said, I want them to be encouraged and listen to one of the things he said, or the preeminence of Christ, and I want them to be knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan. What is God's mysterious plan? It is Jesus himself. I love that. In him lie all the, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so what is he saying? First of all, let's pause here. He said, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. What is he getting at? And you will hear us talk about it. one of our tenets of, of faith here. It's one of our, um, our building blocks for this church as he talks about the essential of unity. I want them to be knit together in the bonds of love, the ties of love. The importance of the unity of believers. I cannot stress the importance of how and why we should live in unity. It isn't just a good idea. It isn't, well, you should, because that's just a good thing to do. It actually has far-reaching implications. And that is why the enemy will fight against our unity. Let's go to the next slide and just talk about this a moment. You've heard these passages before, but what Paul is getting at the beginning, he starts this second thought, and we call it chapter 2, but he says, I want the church, I want them to be bonded together in love. And, and he's going back and Jesus saying, I pray that they, talking about us, would be one as you, Father. He's praying to the Father in John 17. I want them to be one as you and I are one, so that the world will know that you sent me to the implications of the gospel rest on unity. And so our unity and our love for each other when we're bonded together in love reveals to the world that God sent Jesus. It reveals the gospel. And so the opposite is true. When we are in disunity 
And when we battle against each other, it actually ruins our witness and the world looks on and they say, I don't want anything to do with that. We can have disunity out here. We don't need the church for that. I don't need another place of drama to go to. And so the implications of unity are huge. And we need to, all of us need to take that personally. Unity reveals that Jesus came. Ephesians 4.3, Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, make every effort Keep yourself united in the Spirit, binding yourself together with peace. Make every effort. Every effort. First John, John, this is my commandment. You must love one another from God. This is my commandment. You must love one another. This is not just a good idea. And so, what is Paul saying? If, and we're going to go back to chapter 1 a lot, if Christ is supreme and preeminent, there must be unity. If there's not unity, and you're having all this division in the church, that means your issue is the preeminence and supremacy of Christ. Because if He's supreme, if He's preeminent in all things, that means that I need to get along with my brothers and my sisters. I need to forgive when I don't feel like it. I need to get over my offense when there's an opportunity to be offended because we're going to have a lot of opportunities. So look around the room. Fellow broken people, we all are broken. And we will offend, we will get offended. It's going to happen. We're going to say things we wish we wouldn't have said. People are going to say things to us that they're going to maybe regret or maybe not regret. And what do we do with that? Our, our response must be, God, I choose to forgive. Because you are preeminent and supreme in all things. Therefore, you give me the power and the ability to walk in unity. So you're supreme and head over the church. I have no good excuse not to be unified. There are no good excuses not to be in unity if Christ is supreme. And so that's what the enemy, he will continually try to divide the church. He will cause strain in relationships that lead to holding grudges, offenses, unforgiveness, and ultimately his end game is to break us apart. And that's why we must forgive quickly. We'll get into that in chapter 3. It gets real personal in chapter 3. And that's again where Paul is going to get right into our face. He's going to step away. If you don't want your toes to be stepped on, you want to be challenged, you may want to miss in two weeks. I encourage you to be here. Let's step in this together and let the Holy Spirit confront us right where we're at. How we treat people. How we love people. But he's going to get real personal. But unity is of most importance. And Paul is saying, I want you to be bonded together in love. And so then he says uh, in that uh, first part, he says, I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. Jesus is the manifestation of the mysterious plan of God. And, you know, you think about the Old Testament believers, it was quite a mystery to them, Right? They knew the promise of Messiah, but they didn't know how it was all going to work out. I mean, even the Pharisees were misled. They didn't believe that Jesus would come because he came so, so he came in authority that he had humility and grace. He didn't come like they thought he would. And so there was this mystery about how it would all um, unfold. And Paul is saying the, the mystery is found in Jesus himself. 
and in Him lie all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And again, this is about Him being supreme again. He's saying, don't forget that it's all about Jesus. God's plan is Jesus. Salvation is Jesus. He's what humanity is longing for. He is what every human heart is desperately in search for. He's the source of contentment. He's the source of peace, the source of joy, hope, etc., etc. And, and here's the thing. He doesn't just give hope. He doesn't just give peace. He is joy. He is peace. He is the manifestation of God's mysterious plan. And he's saying it doesn't come from stuff. It doesn't come from relationships. It doesn't come from having that perfect job. It doesn't come from being white. We don't get our cues from culture. And that's why this is a, this is such a counterculture message. We don't get our value from culture or what culture or people on TV will say about us. We don't get our, we don't get our cues of value from them. We don't get our, our, our cues of what beauty is from culture or Hollywood. That's not who we get our cues. Except that they are preaching every day, right? And there's a lot of listening ears. But we don't take our cues of what success from the world. We don't get that stuff from culture. We get it from Jesus Himself, supreme over all things. You're the one who tells me who I am. You're the one who leads me and guides my life. You're the one who says that I am beautiful before God. You're the one that says I am a success. You're the one that makes me an overcome. I don't get my cues from culture. Get them from Jesus. And then in verse 4, let's move on. And he says this, I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with what? Well-crafted arguments. Isn't this, this is so rich, written thousands of years ago, but isn't it so applicable today? Telling you this so that no one deceives you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should, and that your faith in Christ is strong. And so these believers, they were walking with the Lord, and he said, keep walking with the Lord. But don't, I'm telling you this, I'm telling you of the supremacy of Christ again, where he's building this kind of, I'm telling you all this about Jesus because I don't want someone coming in and deceive you with well-crafted arguments. You see, if you aren't surrendered to Christ, if you're not making him supreme and preeminent, and you, you don't understand that in him is everything that I need, we can be open to well-crafted arguments with men. And it sounds real good, and they'll teach it, and they'll sound, some of it even has a spiritual tone to it. Sometimes they'll even throw Jesus in the middle of it. And Jesus, yeah, he's, he's a great guy, and, but if he's not preeminent and supreme, and God is all in the way and the truth of life, it's well-crafted arguments of men that we need to guard our hearts against. And again, it'll sound really good. It might even sound a little bit like the truth. But the truth is not open to our own interpretation. The truth is found, with, with, again, if Jesus is agreed, he says, I am the truth. 
truth is not subjective to what we think. We don't get to sit on the throne. Not a human being. I don't care how smart they are. I don't care how well-crafted their arguments are. A human being cannot sit on the throne of truth and declare this is truth. Or I believe that truth is subjective or relative to what I think it should be. No, Jesus is truth. And what he says is truth. And either you believe that or not, he's supreme over all things. He is truth. We don't get to redefine truth. We don't get to say, well, I think this is true for, you know, this might be true for you, and don't put the beliefs off on me. This is true for you and true for me, and I have my own truth. No, either he's true or he's not true. Verse 6, moving on. And now, just as you accept the Christ, you as your Lord, the great word there, Lord. Lord has the idea of supremacy. We, we love Jesus as Savior, and He is. He's our Savior. He's died for our sins, and He's the Savior of mankind. What is Paul saying? And now, just as you accept Christ, you need to accept Him as Lord. Lord is that He's supreme and preeminent in my life. He said, you must continue to follow Him. And, and, and there's a little bit of a fatherly warning. Don't just stop. He says, let your roots grow down into Him. And let your lives be built on Him. Let your roots go down in Him and your lives be built. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with what? Thankfulness. Thankfulness. So Jesus is Lord. He says, continue to follow Him. He's leading us. And I love the imagery here of letting your roots grow down into Him. Not what culture says. Let your roots go down into Him. This is about intimacy. This is about a loving relationship. It's not what the news source says. It's not what the blogger says. It's about what he says. Let your lives be built on him. And you go back and remember the story that Jesus taught about the wise and the foolish builders in Matthew 7. We remember as kids we sang the song. Wise man built a house upon the rock. Yeah. Remember that? Love that song. And that's what Paul is referring back to Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is the rock that you need to build your life on. And Jesus, in that illustration, says there's two builders. They both build houses. You know what? The houses look very similar. But it's all about the foundation. And here's another thing he says is that the, the storms came. It didn't miss the house that was on the rock. It didn't say that it was exempt from the storms, right? In this life, Jesus says, you will have trouble. And the storms came to both homes. One stood firm because its foundation was on the rock, and one collapsed because of its foundation being on the sand. Where is your hope? Where is the foundation of your life? That's why Paul is saying, let your roots grow down deep into the foundation of who Christ is. Shallow roots are easily torn up when storms come. So what are you rooted to? Are you rooted just to a philosophy of who Jesus might be or Jesus himself? And the invitation is that we are rooted in him, in relationship. Because that's what Paul says at the end of this. He said, then, then you grow in what you've been taught and you will overflow with what? Thankfulness. 
I love that because the fruit of a life is we understand when He's preeminent. All of a sudden, that's what Paul's getting at, is it's a relational thing that, that He saved me from my sin, He's rescued me, and now I'm so thankful that I want to make Him preeminent. I want to make Him Lord. I want to make Him supreme in all things. And so the natural progression of this is that I want to make Him supreme and Lord, and I'm so thankful for what He's done for me. And then Paul gets a little fatherly again in verse 8. Let's go to the next one. Again, he's similar to what he just said. He says, Don't let anyone capture you with what empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world. This is very important. He's fathering us here spiritually. And when this is something we have to guard. He just said it in, in, in one way. Now he's getting very emphatic about it. Don't let anyone cast you with empty philosophies and that kind of nonsense to come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from who? Jesus. Get, let your source be Jesus. Your source of truth. You want to know what truth is? If you're searching, and we should be searching. Sometimes, you know, questions that lead us, um, you know, to, to really digging. But watch where you dig. Watch where you're reading. Watch what you're watching. Let it go that you get your information from Christ Himself. He said, for in Christ was all the fullness of God in the human body. So you also complete through your union with Christ who is the head over every ruler and authority. There is no authority except Jesus. Every authority, every ruler will bow its knee to Him. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Make no mistake about it. He is supreme. He will rule supreme. And so he's reiterating again what he said. And, 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 and why would he reiterate about being captured by empty philosophy? It was because it's a constant day-to-day battle, right? We're bombarded with what culture says. We're bombarded with our own thoughts. And this is not to make us feel like, you know, well, I'm kind of, you know, in and out of my relationship. It's just wanting to say, desperately need him every day. You have to guard your heart every day. Walk with Him every day. Because you're going to get bombarded with these things. And that, that you know, and what somebody else says, or what this blogger said, or somebody posted this on Facebook and read this, isn't this interesting? And, 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 you, and you go, how do I compare it? How do I know the truth of this? How do I know what's true and what's not true? Is we have to go back to Jesus and that manifested through the Word of God. That's how we do this. And so he's, he's the one, he's, it's, it's, it's us subjecting ourselves to him and not human thinking and spiritual powers of this world. Because if we're not careful, culture then begins to lead us and to teach us on morality. They teach us on love. They teach us how to live. They teach us how to, what, what marriage is, what marriage isn't. And we take our cues from culture, and that's just not true. Because we have to come back to the authority and supremacy of Jesus Christ. In Christ, Paul says, there's all the fullness of God in human form. And so, and what is he saying? You're, you're complete through being connected with him. That's what John, remember what Jesus said in John 15? Remain in me. Stay connected with me. I'm divine, you're the branch. Stay connected with me. A branch that gets broken off and it goes doing its own thing, it's going to die. It's going to wither and die. Stay connected to me. 
And then in verse 11, we're going to kind of wind down here. He gets into it. He said, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, he's saying in quotations, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with Him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Now what Paul is referring to here, this is a gen- these are Gentile believers in the city of Colossae, the believers in this city. They were Gentile believers, and so what he's saying is, there was an Old Testament, and if you read the Old Testament, remember, they, they instituted circumcision as a covenant between God and man, the cutting away of flesh. We won't get too graphic. Everybody kind of understands they meant to help flesh, so they get that. We, we, we understand what's going on here. But there was a spiritual significance that was in the Old Testament to say it's the cutting away of the excess and, and, and symbolic of saying it's the cutting away of the sinful nature. And so, why is Paul dealing with, with, with a group of Gentiles who don't adhere to Old Testament? Most likely, there were some maybe Jewish believers who were saying, well, to really know Christ, you need to be circumcised. And almost taking them back. And, and Paul's saying, no, that was, that was a symbolic thing for them. But under Christ, you're not under the law of circumcision. And so, in some of Paul's letters, he deals with um, cultural law, he deals with ceremonial law, and, but he, he also deals with, with morality, the law of morality. The law of morality stands the test of time. That never changes. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Those laws of morality. That's why some people go, well, we're not under the law. Well, we're under the law of morality. That never changes. We're not underneath the Jewish customary laws of the day. If we were, then the men would have to, you know, grow their hair off to the sides and not cut it, and we would have to dress a certain way and do certain things. We're not under those ceremonial laws, but we under, are under the law of morality, again, fulfilled in Christ himself. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of the law, but to fulfill the law. And when we make him clean and supreme and we love him, then all of a sudden it's, I want to live the way you want me to live, Jesus. And we get it in the right order because a lot of times people think that morality makes me a Christian. That's why some people say, well, you know, how do you get to heaven? Well, you, I, I think I'm good. I think I'm a good person. In other words, you're saying my morality gets me to heaven, which is a wrong equation for the gospel. If morality got me into heaven, Jesus would not have gone to the cross. And so we get it backwards. We get it and we say, well, I want to be good so that I can belong to Christ. And that's just a wrong way of living life. It's, a, it's actually a life of torment. Because we're, we're never living good enough. Then we stumble and fall, and it's detrimental. And Jesus is saying, if you stumble and fall, get back up. There's, you have an advocate with the Father with me. I'm interceding for you. I want to walk with you. And then we understand, and we say, we're so thankful for what Jesus did. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for giving your life. Now, because of that, I'm so in love with you that I want to live the life that you want me to live. And it leads me to living morality. Not morality to get saved, but morality because I love him. And I want to live his way. And then if I make a mistake, and I, and I shouldn't have said that, then what we do is we, we quickly repent. 
Well, forgive me, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. When we sincerely do that, we're lost. We're friends. And so he's talking, talking about circumcision and, and, and baptism here because he wants us to understand that we're not subjected to the old customary laws of the circumcision actually symbolism of Christ cutting away the sinful nature. And so when you're baptized in Christ, then you have new life in Jesus. Now I want us to pause there. Baptism doesn't get you to heaven. Baptism is a response. What, what did Peter say in the day of Pentecost? He's preaching, and they're cut to the heart because he's proclaiming the gospel. He's talking about what Jesus did. And it says the people that were cut to the heart of his message, so he's proclaiming the gospel, and they go, what, what do we need to do? Tell us what we need to do. And he says, All right, you're responding right now. Even, even by you saying that, you're responding to the gospel, and your heart is open to the gospel. He says, here's what we need to do. Repent, please. Turn from your way of doing things, get yourself off the throne, put Jesus on the throne, and he says, and then be baptized. And so there is an order there that I believe that we can see and how the church was born, that you respond to the gospel, you repent, and you make Jesus Lord, and then out of that, you do the outward symbolism of baptism. Some people just think, well, if you get baptized, that seals you to heaven somehow. I don't believe it's biblical. I believe it's a response after you've repented and you made Jesus Lord. That was for free. You didn't even have to pay for that. Verse 13, let's go to the next one. We'll, we'll wind down. So you were dead because of your sins, and you didn't give us the balance with you. This is what Paul's talking about. And he's bringing us back to why we're believers. You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Therefore, you know, and, and so that, that symbol is not circumcision. Then God made you alive with Christ, for He forgave all your sins. That's good news. He canceled the record of the charges against you, and He took it away by nailing it to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us, and all of His charges against you. And so Paul's given us some even legal terminology here. He said, the devil had all these charges against you. When you surrendered your life to Christ, they were nailed to the cross and they were canceled. Now it's insubmissible evidence in the court of life. And the enemy can't use that against you. Your sins are removed. And I love this in verse 15. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And this is that upside-down kingdom because the cross is like the greatest defeat. And Paul saying it was the greatest victory. It was the greatest victory. Because he shamed the charges against us by his victory on the cross. The cross is victory. A reminder of what he did for us. Verse 16. He said, so don't let anyone continue for what you eat or drink for not celebrating certain holy days or new moons that are as a Sabbath. For these rules only were shadows of the reality yet to come. So he said, all that old Testament stuff, the feast, all of that stuff, it points to the reality of Jesus. We're not to adhere to those things again to get us closer to God. Now, I, I'm all for if people want to like do a Passover celebration if we're all if it, if it, if it ultimately leads, it leads us to the reality of Jesus that He fulfilled it, He became the Passover lamb. So we celebrate the Jewish feast to remind us of Christ. 
What Paul is saying is he's saying, don't let people come in to say that that's what you need to get to God. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. And so he's dealing with this kind of where people are pressed in. Don't let anyone continue by insisting on pious self-denial or many different spiritual experiences. The words of angels saying they've had visions about these things that their sinful minds have made them proud. And they're not connected to, to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with his joint ligaments and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, verse 20, that's true. You died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep following the rules of the world such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are your human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. And that's what Paul's saying is, I, I, I want you to be free from those evil desires. And all that other stuff doesn't make you free from that. And so he's dealing with kind of two prideful issues. One was people that understood all of the symbolism of the, the old way of doing the old covenant and how that, and you need to kind of do that and participate in this and eat this or don't eat that. And it really makes you really special to God if you're doing that. And Paul is saying, no, it doesn't. It should remind you of Jesus. And the other two, the other, the other type of issue is people that have had maybe spiritual experiences and they're kind of almost preaching it as truth and doctrine. The worship of angels and we have, we have these angelic visitations and we've done this and we have this vision or that vision. And God gives visions that are, there are supernatural things that God does, but we are not to worship it or make it about us. Right? It should all be. Whether the Old Testament, all of that points to Christ. Anything God does to me points to Christ. Any work that happens to me points to Christ. Any spiritual gift that's going to operate in my life should point to Christ. The supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is the truth, He's the way, He's the life. Everything in my life should point to who He is. And so Paul is dealing with this, staying away from all these prideful issues that make it about us. Either works that make me really look cool and special, but look at how self-discipline that guy is. Because we can be prideful in our humility. Look at how humble I am. You know, I mean, it gets kind of weird. But we can get there. Guard your heart. And so he's dealing with both issues. And he said, it's a prideful issue either way. And so where is he again going on? Driving towards a standard. Our foundation should be lived every day for Jesus. Following Him, loving Him, dying with Him. Again, not in a works mindset of saying, well, I'm just going you know, to die with Him, bless God, and then walk with Him. For joy, I get rid of everything. And I love, you know, and I had the passage referred to that, but I didn't touch it because I wanted to share this in closing in Matthew 13. You know, when Paul says, In Christ lie all the treasures of wisdom, not he is a treasure. And in Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. Remember these parables that he gave? And he says, The kingdom of God is like a man who is walking through a field, and he comes up and he stumbles upon something, and he stubs his toe, and he finds this treasure in the field. 
he digs it up and he realizes this is more valuable than anything I've ever seen. It's valuable, more valuable than anything I've ever known. And it's just for joy. Not for duty, not for work, not for well, and, and do whatever it takes to have this because this is what I'm supposed to do. It's for joy. He's elated. He buries it, and then he goes and he sells all that he has. He gets, he goes, I'll sell everything, and I get this money, and I go to whoever owns that land, and he says, here's all I have, and I want the land that big. I, can, can I have that piece of land? And this, for the landowner, can seem like, you know, you're, you're giving me a lot of money for a land that's not even that great, seemingly. But he says, okay. He says, for joy, he sells everything in him so that he can have that treasure. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, more than just saying the kingdom of God, you know what he's saying? What Paul is saying? Jesus is saying, I am the treasure. More than just my kingdom, it's me. Paul is saying Jesus is the treasure that goes beyond anything that we can imagine. And for joy, we sell everything. For joy, we love Him. For joy, we say, I don't have to live that way. For joy, I'm going to give you my heart and my life. For joy, I'm going to walk with you every day. For joy, I'm going to forsake sinful things and the pleasures of this world. And it's for joy because you are worth it. You are the treasure. You are everything. You are supreme. You are preeminent. And I understand what you've done for me, and I love you. It makes me want to thank you and give you my heart every day. We let our roots grow down deep into the treasure of Jesus. And so how do we live this out? And ultimately, again, it's the title. It's the battle for supremacy. Who will have supremacy and preeminence in your life? Who will be on the throne of your life? Will you say, God, I can can do this. I'll stick here. Maybe it's areas of your life. Maybe there's certain places you follow Christ and it's very easy and you go, you know, I follow Christ. Maybe there's areas that God wants to touch on you. You need to to remove yourself from that area. Maybe it's an issue of unity. Maybe it's an issue of forgiveness. Maybe it's an issue of, you know, where you've taken control. Because ultimately, when we refuse to forgive or we hold a grudge, what we're saying is, I'm in control. I'm on the throne. The problem is, it ends up being a place of destruction and heartache. And over and over again, day after day, for joy, we have to get off the throne. So Jesus is prepared again. You are preeminent. You're supreme in my life. Again and again, day after day, for joy. Here's the thing, we can do it by His power, by His strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because it's not an easy life, and fighting against culture, fighting against my own sinful nature, it's, it's a battle. It's a battle worth fighting every single day. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace, God. Continue to be preeminent and supreme in our hearts. God, help us to get up every day and remember what you've done for us. Lord, to be thankful because of the cross and that it leads us to making you supreme every single day. We're going to close this morning with communion.